0: Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast that you need. Today on the show, it's me and Dr. Amira Rose Davis. Today on the show, we will be re-examining the intersections of sport and monarchy. We also have a lot of great content on Patreon. And if you want to hear us speak Welsh, you want don't want to miss it. Before we begin, let's catch up a little bit, because we were we took a bit of a hiatus in the summer, and there were some concerts. Amira, what did you see?
1: Well, I can't remember what I did this summer. I'm sure I did something. Um, but this past week, me and Samari went to see Bad Bunny. We saw him about a week after Brenda and Luna saw him, which was really fun. Um and we drove to San Antonio over the Alamo Dome. It was wonderful. Brenda had told me like she got a ridiculous number of steps because she didn't sit down for three hours. He does like 36 songs. And I was thought I was prepared for that and I was not prepared for that because it was just like three straight hours. It wasn't just that you were standing, it's that you're jumping. Mm. You know what I mean? And dancing. And it was like definitely a workout. It was fun. It was energetic. We had a great time. Um, and then we just walked along the River Walk in San Antonio to walk back. Um, and, and you know, times with Samari are always my favorite times. So it was great to see such a high-energy concert, of one of my favorite artists with her.
0: So how long has she been into Bad Bunny?
1: Well, I would not say she is. She definitely was just being very nice to me, Aww. going. She's very eclectic with her music taste. You know, she listens to everything. She just, like, emerged from her 90s, Hip-hop phase. That's
0: where I am currently, so we need to... Yeah, I know.
1: That was her all summer. (laughs) Um, But she liked a few songs. um, And so she was definitely more, like, when he would get into a set of, like, some of his older songs... She was just like, oh, okay, don't know this one. <laughs> like, um, but she was still vibing. It was still vibes. So It's
0: actually really wonderful to go to concerts where you don't necessarily know all the discography. Because you can just, it's the vibe. It's the energy in the room that keeps you going. I've been to a couple concerts where I didn't know all the music from the artist. And like, you know, I mean, mine is a bit on the flip. I actually attended... Uh, one of those candlelight concerts by a quartet who were doing Vivaldi. So we're flipping from Bad Bunny, we're pivoting to classical, and they were wonderful. And it was actually at the all-inclusive church in the east end of Toronto, where over 20 years ago was the first gay marriage in the country. So it's like a very historic, very important church, but it's beautiful for concerts. It was a little warm, because it's not air conditioned, because it the church itself is quite old, but I went with my buddy, Jenny, who was here from Barbados visiting and Leanne, her friend. So the three of us went and it was like, it was a beautiful summer night and it was actually perfect. And I haven't been to a classical concert in a very, very, very long time, like even before COVID. Like no one in my family particularly likes classical music. And I played the cello for a really long time. So like, I still have a pension and Vivaldi is by far my favorite composer. And the whole experience was really, really cool. Like my daughter wants to go to one like Jihad wants to go, but she wants to go to like the Taylor Swift version. (laughs)
1: Like
0: I could be swayed to do that. But just this was particularly beautiful. And Jenny played the cello as well. So the two of us completely nerded out over strings, but you know, um, more more recently when I was in Prince Edward Island, I went to. The Cayley. For those that don't know what that is, it's just a roundup of like, you know, sort of Celtic Gaelic tunes with a maritime flavor, and it's an old community. My husband did not go because he's like, this entire trip is challenging my blackness, so I'm gonna stop at the Cayley or hoot nanny. <laughs> it was like a bit like hoot nanny. That's a word that people use, and I like that word. It's like one of my favorite words, and I brought in the use of hoot nanny to be more than just like a get together around kitchen with spoons. I do it whenever there's just like a family get together. <laughs> Let's kind of use the word. The Queen died. Queen Elizabeth II was 25 when she took over the throne. She died last week at 96. She was the queen of 32 sovereign states during her lifetime and 15 at the time of her death. Her reign was 70 years, 214 days, and is the longest of any British monarch and the longest recorded of any female Head of state in history. Today, we're going to examine the relationship of the monarchy with sport historically. Games have been a part of that family tradition for a long time. Be it Commonwealth Games, Invictus Games, horse racing, the Queen was fond of Ascot, polo. So Queen Elizabeth didn't have a strong tie to football, but in 1966, she presented the World Cup trophy to Bobby Moore at Wembley after their 4-2 win against Germany. And following that, much, much later, Arsenal was the only team ever invited to have tea at Buckingham Palace. Now, to start, let's look at some of the reactions of the sports world. According to an ESPN article, a few hours after she died, a document titled, quote, The Demise of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II National Mourning Guidance, and in it, issues of sport were addressed. And it stated that there is no obligation to cancel or postpone events or sporting fixtures or close entertainment venues during the national mourning period, but this is at the discretion of individual organizations." Now, we've seen the cancelling of matches. The English Premier League did postpone matches over the weekend, and we saw you know, the news of that through certain other leagues that were armbands. But, Amira, what else did we see happen?
1: Well, we saw um, a number of remembrances and, and platitudes given in, in certain sports, like, for instance, in Formula One, which is an international sport, um, and therefore they decided not to cancel the um Grand Prix at Monza in Italy. Um, However, uh, you know, there's a moment of silence before the Grand Prix this past weekend and stuff like that. And that's because Formula One is heavily influenced by the UK. Um, They have a number of constructors, not only the British constructors like Aston Martin, of course, or Williams, um, but a number of teams' headquarters are also in England as well. So Um, Alpine, formerly Renault, of course, is a French company, but their headquarters are in England. Um, That is also the case for Haas, which is an American uh, company, but it is based and run out of England. Uh, This is true for uh, Red Bull as well, which is Austrian. Oh, and Mercedes as well. When you add in McLaren and Williams um, and Aston Martin, which all are teams, you end up having a grid of 10 constructors only three of them aren't based in England. And so that really speaks to the influence and the impact there. Of course, drivers um, like George Russell, Lewis Hamilton, offered their personal condolences as British citizens. Um, And so that's why you see it showing up in sports that aren't necessarily um, formally and singularly British.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't know that about Formula One, but the language used by so many presenters, and we'll get into that a bit as well later, but the language used for mourning. And some people refer to themselves as subjects and some refer to themselves as citizens, all sports people. Um, and there's some EPL matches that won't go on next week.
1: Absolutely. So they announced, of course, this this coming week that most seven would go on with the exception of three matches, the Brighton and Hove um, match versus Crystal Palace, Chelsea and Liverpool, which is a big one, and of course, United versus Leeds United. And one of the things is like Chelsea and Liverpool, for instance, was due to be played in London, which is considered a high category game. Um, and then with Manchester United and Leeds, one of the things they cited is that the Manchester police Force is are supporting um, the funeral processional and um, other kind of locations across the UK. And so they cited actually a dearth of police <laughs> to be able to staff these matches. In in addition to that, some uh, football stadiums are being used as national mourning sites. But I just think it's interesting. A lot of people are very mad about this. They were mad last week when the games were canceled. They're mad that some of these games won't go on, as well as a Europa League game as well. But I think it's really interesting to note um, this is not necessarily down to mourning, but rather the need of the expansive police state. The fact that because it's the highest category of match, Manchester United and Leeds, for instance, it requires over 900 police officers to adequately staff it for a a match to go on. And so we've talked about a police presence at these matches, but I guess I never realized what the bar was, which is like 900 police officers have to be available to staff this match. And of course they're being pulled into other security details. It just, I know for me, I was like, oh, wow. Uh, the way that it's completely intertwined with with policing and especially at a time where we've seen reports out police forces policing mourners, policing people who aren't mourning, who are holding signs that say abolish the monarchy, who are holding signs that say not my king. We see them seized. We see them pulled out of the crowd. It's really actually quite concerning. Um, So thinking about the fact that these games were postponed because they had to dispatch the police officers to these other areas to like police signs that people are saying it really is icky,
0: and that makes me think about the descent of athletes and how that doesn't doesn't happen. Like part we've seen tributes from everyone from the president of Arsenal, <laughs> Ken Fryer. Uh, we've seen tributes from athletes all over the place. In addition to that, I was interested in examining Irish and Scottish teams with ties to nationalism, and for example, the defending Scottish champions. Celtic FC, they have very deep ties to nationalism and left wing Republican political movements. And I just want to remind our listeners that what Republican means in Scotland and Ireland is very different than what it means in the United States. And it's a very left wing in the UK. So Celtic FC acknowledged the Queen's passing with a one sentence statement. Um, They didn't make any aesthetic changes on social media where a lot of the major clubs actually took the Queen's profile and made it their own. You know, there was a couple other teams in Northern Ireland, Clintonville FC only acknowledged with a brief tweet saying the league had postponed Friday night match due to the Queen's passing. That's all they said. And Aberdeen, the Scottish premier side didn't change social media avatars either, but did tweet a statement of condolence. Um, And I think this is, this is really interesting to look at like how, those teams are navigating and how they're doing it. Um, there's there's other examples of that. I mean, after Elizabeth died, it was shared widely that Irish soccer fans were actually celebrating the Queen's death with a chant. Lizzie's in a box. So Queen Elizabeth died last Thursday, but international cricket matches continued on Saturday. On the men's side... England played South Africa at the Oval, and the first rendition of God Save the King was actually sung. Later that day, the English women's national cricket team played Team India, and they paused for a moment of silence to honor and remember the Queen. The optics of that actual photo are something I keep thinking about. What were the actual players on Team India thinking? Were they allowed to express? Are they allowed to express? Particularly honouring someone who's complicit in the colonisation of their country. And just what if those athletes wanted to say something? I thought about what if those people who had been completely impacted so yes the death of the queen does impact people but not in the same way then it's something that have been ruminating on and you know I wanted to sort of hone in Amira and tap into your brilliant historian mind like let's look at the British monarchy specifically this family and their role in sport.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's really interesting to think about sport in the British Empire because it was a key way that um, imperial rule was disseminated throughout places that they were colonizing. Um, It's what we term soft power. So it's not bringing a tank in, um, but it's actually really more subversive. It's it's like through cultural means. Um, And one of the reasons why we look at cultural things like sports and, and soft power is because you see how tangled up Things like cricket, uh, rugby, get into promoting empire and continuing, you know, colonial rule. And so, using sports, like I said, cricket, because it's it's a huge example in these colonial areas, was a way of bringing Victorian ideals through their games. And so a lot of what we think about, even like lawn tennis, ideas of prim and proper playing, um, thinking about ideas of like how you should dress or carry yourselves during the game of play, how the game is played, not just the game itself was an exportation of these colonial ideas. Um, and then when you get into it, like setting up cricket clubs in the British West Indies is is one of the main ways you can see this example, of course. It's been documented in Beyond a Boundary by CLR James. He said, cricket has plunged me into politics long before I was aware of it. When I did turn to politics, I did not have much to learn. Um, and he talks about cricket being the thing that could examine national culture and society in the West Indies, understandings of education and class and race and colonialism, um, presenting this kind of uh, very British idea of hierarchy, social hierarchy. Because if you look at the history of how these cricket clubs were established, cricket clubs start popping up very early. You have um, an imperial outpost having a cricket club in 1792. In India, you have these cricket clubs coming, posting up in in the early 1800s. In Australia, 1868, you have a cricket team forming. They're established along racial lines. At first, you have them for the British elites. Then you have this kind of gradual entry of Black West Indians, especially, into these clubs. But how it how it happens, you can almost watch the colonial order assert itself. And so at first, well, they can't play at all. They're not admitted to the clubs. And then it's like, well, you can play, but you can't captain, right? You only, this is when I don't know cricket. You only can play certain positions. <laughs> yeah. It was like the sweep or the board. Or, the bowler? Bowler. Yeah, there okay. you go. You could only do certain things in cricket. And then as it went on... Um, And part of that idea about looking for decolonization was how these local spaces made that game their own. Mm -hmm. A distinct style of West Indian cricket emerges um, and becomes still a sport of mass importance there and yet changed by how West Indians actually transform the game. And I think that these sporting sites, whether you see it in, in the British West Indies, colonial Africa, whether you see it in Australia, uh, you see soccer, football operating like this too, especially in places like Ireland and Wales. I mean, even the fact that Welsh teams, right, play in the English football system tells you about how that territory has been subsumed by empire. And I think the British Empire really extended uh, and imported these ideas about physical culture in the body, about masculinity tied to that, about race and what a dominant sporting body looks like. Those Victorian ideals about muscular Christianity and who you are as an upper-class person or as a physically fit person were directly imported by this empirical order. And moreover, and probably more insidious, was this idea that this was a way of literally colonizing Um, And what I mean by that is the basic idea of colonialism. There's a savage mass of people that needs our benevolent help. They have resources they don't know what to do with. They have a society they don't have organized, and we're going to come in and ship shape that up. And one of the ways they did that was through this idea of physical education, um, physical culture, whipping their bodies quite literally into shape, making them wear what was seen as civilized clothing, making them obviously speak English, civilized language, quote-unquote. And so sport was at once promoting these values, but it was also, in the eyes of the British Empire, civilizing these savage colonial spaces. So when they set up a cricket club, have a uh, organized uh, rugby match, or when they have polo or horse racing, right? It's this idea like, oh yes, now they are coming into the right way. And now we know that they're learning how to participate in a civilized society. So it became a, a marker, a thermometer. It was a way to look and say these... In, colonized spaces are coming along. Um, And so I think that understanding that it was also about how the bodies of colonial subject were read um, is is really important. And I I do want to say, as we've covered on the show, it's certainly not only uh, the British Empire, but in many ways, they're the blueprint. Look at something like the the Commonwealth Games, right? This idea that we still have an operation, that it's bringing together the Commonwealth, <laughs> former colonial spaces and current colonial spaces um, presided over by the crown. It's a relic of the dominant nature of, of British Empire and a way that we can see it continuing. So I, I do think there's a lot to consider about the way sport has helped facilitate and maintain the role of, of the British Empire across the world.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think it's really important to, to keep that in mind. And there's a couple of examples that I want to bring up, how sports have been resistant. I saw this blog written on the LSE uh, server, and I love their writing. And I saw this uh, story about the revenge of Plassey football in the British Raj and how there were indigenous Indian teams in, you know, the early 20th century that actually played. And Mohun Bagan was a sportsman. He was a footballer who played against the IFA, it's called. So Mohun Bagan was part of the Maharaj area that was controlled by the British Empire. And this was all happening in Bengal, in West Bengal. It's really interesting because you have names of these clubs like Howrah United Club, the Calcutta Rangers. So they're all imported names from the British. And essentially ended up happening was, you know, uh, Bagan and, and his team won and they defeated the colonizers. And with the stage of the IFA Shield final, you know, that's what it was called, that stage was pivoted because it was expected that the white people would win, but they didn't win. So this was this, an example that's actually a part of history. And, you know, you you can look at nationalism through political phenomenon. You can look at, uh, before Brendan and I had uh, Dr. Jean Williams on, we talked about how football came to be, and it was used to control classes and masses. That's essentially what it was for. It was also a means of opposition and resistance and another example and this is from shane thomas friend of the show he wrote for media diversified in july 2015 about why do we show such loyalty to the royalty as such and um it was really interesting because he wrote about a match that was being played um in west brom united is, is a is a team in the premier league and they were playing charleston battery as just a you know, a a test match. And when the British national anthem was played, James McLean, an Irish player, turned away from the flag and bowed his head. And he was ripped apart in media. He was told that you should leave if the flag offends you. I think the idea of nothing but respect and reverence, and Shane talks about this in this piece, nothing was accepted other than that reverence, an uncritical position of love and deference, because the idea and the, the excuse used, well, it's sport, don't make it political. And for a very long time, those who would defy and and, and sort of uh, deny the brutal effects of colonialism that are intertwined and entangled into sports, it was like the original sport washing was done through the monarchy through sport. So Amira, When we talk about sport washing, we've often heard the argument that colonization actually made sport better. Because look, I've had actually somebody say to me with a straight face, well, England gave South Asia, they gave India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, they gave them cricket. So isn't that a good thing?
1: Yeah, Shereen, I think this is a really great point because... um people are not naive, right? And so I talked about before what the mindset was from the British Empire about how sports was being used, but also people in, in these spaces were not naive about you know, what, what the intention was and using sport to push back, uh, namely by winning one of, one of the first ways we see this in the West Indies, of course, is, um, one of the first test series between the West Indies and England in cricket in 1930. By 1934, 35, the West Indian cricket team won. And it really kind of changed a view of like, oh, we're always stronger. We're always mightier. Um, and one of the things that you see is when sporting spaces also include the ability for these um, colonized nations to win and to notch a victory, it is a resounding victory because it pushes back on the idea that Britain can never be toppled, right? That they are the strongest and the mightiest. I um, mean, I think that a lot of people have infused decolonialization into sport because like, like we talk about segregation, right? Like when Jesse Owens goes to Berlin in thirty six and wins all those gold medals at like Hitler's, you know, Berlin Games. It's refuting the racism of the day, mm-hmm. and so colonial sporting spaces also have that potential to them, uh, which is why you see, you know, the joke now about the Commonwealth Games. Um, it, John uh, Oliver made a joke this
2: week: the Commonwealth Games. The historic display of a once mighty nation gathering together the countries it lost and finding a way to lose to them once more. So the next it's time it's
1: also a site in which people have infused their, like Shireen said, their own notion of what that game, how that game should be played, right? And so West Indian cricket starts to look very distinct from British cricket.
0: In addition to that, I was interested and wanted to touch on us cricket and this anti-colonial effort because cricket again was transplanted from Britain to South Asia and, you know, just literally took off there and now is very much beloved and probably the most played sport in the world. There's this great article about reexamining cricket. And as Amir already said, Beyond the Boundary is like the seminal work on this, but just how it's interesting that people are reclaiming that sport from themselves. And now newer generations actually don't associate cricket with England. I have cousins and their children who associate cricket with Pakistan. They associate it with rivalries between India and Pakistan and upcoming. And so it's really interesting to see how we move along. Like, we need to know the history. But so how the present is being absorbed this way. Yeah. I
1: mean, I think there's an idea of sporting nationalism that arises, especially in these former colonized space that gain independence. Because one of the first thing a lot of independent nation states do is apply to the Olympics to be recognized on their own. Um, and so you look at places like, say, Jamaica, right, who form their own identity around track and field. And I think that those are the ways that we've seen resistance occur in sport um, and wrestle with these ideas of like how they first came to the sport in general. I think to finish the problem and the persistence of colonization, which is would all of these places be playing cricket? if not for the British Empire. We can never live in a fantasy world in which that is not the case. And part of what colonization does is remove those possibilities, remove that imagination even from us. And so all we have is the way people have infused their own way into spores or in the way that they've adapted it to their own or in the way that they've dominated, right? But part of of the ugly, insidious nature of colonization means that it's always reifying it. Every time people play cricket, every time they're always reifying the seed that was planted by colonial power. Um, And this is why empire is not so easily disentangled. The British empire, the sun has set on it long ago, but through these things, you see how
0: it persists. Yeah, that's so powerful. I've felt, you know, a certain way, I'm very clear about my position. I, I want that fucking diamond back. I want the Kohinoor back. It was one of the first things I thought of. In her crown, the Kohinoor diamond was stolen from India, pre-partition India. And, and you know, permit me to do my little rant here because, you know, between late 18th century and 1947 when the partition of India and Pakistan happened and then after that came Bangladesh and, and East Pakistan. But after that was the looting of a place where there was no increase per capita in India because everything was taken. And loot is actually a word that's used in Urdu to explain theft. So it's taken from English looting and it's actually used in in, in vernacular. And I think about that a lot. And I think about how, you know, racialized sports presenters and and athletes from those colonial histories have been mourning the queen. And I mean, Amira and you and I have talked about this a lot. You know, I feel some, of some kind of way. When I see particularly presenters from South Asia morning when I see people posting things like, well, it's, you know, someone died and you should feel this way. I'm like, "I, you, you don't get to tell me how to feel about this. Like, that's not how this works. I get to feel certain things. We've seen in real life how systems of colonialism are still brutalizing places those systems of classism that have been so deeply embedded and you know whether it's shadism or or anything else like it's hard to to not feel irritated and then i thought about you know that caught my ire those from those histories that are mourning publicly but amira you you pointed something out to me you know you're my sage in that it's a little more complicated than that
1: i think it's really hard um when you live marginalized in these spaces. Um, we live in a world that prizes civility over justice, that rewards kind of going with the narratives than kind of speaking in your truth. We've seen this week the way that mourning has been policed. We've seen my my former colleague, you know, Uju went, went viral for... Her statements rooted in history, rooted in her own family's uh, history with the British Empire. Their rape, their pillaging, their death and destruction at quite literally the hands of this monarchy, and yet it was deemed uncivil and unsavory, right? And, and not being able to hold those truths, even from people who are justice-oriented, right? It's hard to to disrupt the pageantry. And I think it's the same when we're looking at racialized people in these sporting spaces that you're referring to I think sometimes we can underestimate how much bravery is required you know how much it requires to go out and stand there and and say something other than putting out a statement right and I I was dreading I knew Lewis Hamilton was going to make a statement um he's literally Sir Lewis Hamilton. He's been quite literally knighted by this monarchy. Yeah. Um so obviously he was gonna say something. He also spent his summer break in Namibia and in Kenya. And I think about how everything he says is scrutinized, mm. how, how he could exhale wrong and there would be articles screaming about how terrible he is right we know what that racism looks like and i think what does it mean to be in that position Mm -hmm. so lewis put out a statement that was very grounded in his personal experience with the monarchy and then he posted about chris kava who was a unarmed black man murdered um by british police last week for the rest of the day you know what i mean and so i think that this is part of the trapdoor of colonization um We saw it with the French national team after they won the World Cup, where some on the team were pointing out, like, even though everybody was posting the African flags that they were from, they were saying, oh, we're all French. And being in that space between worlds where you're always made to feel marginal, those moments of collective mourning or collective winning or collective anything that feels like you're moving from the margins to the core can be very seductive and, and not only that can feel easier than insisting that you shouldn't be marginalized in the first place, insisting that your entire relationship with the space you're in was born out of um, domination and imperialism. And I think that it's so hard to have expectations of how people operate in those spaces. Um, and so I, like you, those things hurt and they can hurt. Um, and also f- I understand watching how Ujo has been treated makes it scary to even talk about the subject, to even say these truths. Like, those are what happens. You get those examples. And so I mostly just send a lot of grace to those who have been speaking truth to power, who have been harmed by empire and want to talk about that harm, who don't feel part of a national mourning moment and who have um a lot of a fire, right, burning in them to say, this hasn't been right, it's still not right, and I won't stop talking about that, and I wish you well in raising your voice.
2: Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database, matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com bluewire blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply, cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Now, for all you flamethrowers on Patreon, we are discussing Welcome to Wrexham. Well, American-Canadian lens. True. So it's sort of
1: like, do I love this? Do I? I think, well, first of all, I'm still very irritated that you haven't watched Ted Lasso, which won some (laughs) Emmys again,
0: um, because you should. But also, So for our interview, I talked with Daniel Salofsky, a sociologist of sport and law, about his recent article in The Guardian called... NFL season is here, but I won't be following anymore. I can't unsee the harm
2: it causes. The way that there's this profit above all ethos in the NFL and in in professional sports at large, where players can be, are kept on teams or they're still acquired as long as they continue to perform, no matter really what the allegation of violence is against them. It dropped
0: Tuesday. Check it out. On to everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Um, I'm going to go first. So Anthony Edwards is a basketball player with the Timberwolves. Um, Not to confuse him with Anthony Edwards of ER who played the doctor for like, don't do that because that's what I did. Anyways, Anthony Edwards made some terrible homophobic comments. And the video of this, um, we're not going to play the audio because it's unnecessary, has gone everywhere. Because remember, folks, when you say dumb shit, it stays on the internet forever. And comments were posted on his Instagram. He was driving by and decided to zoom in on a group of men and made absolutely like terrible, unnecessary comments about them and the way they present and the way they exist and live their lives. So Malika Andrews reported yesterday that the Timberwolves issued a statement saying that it was unacceptable. And, you know, Tim Connolly, the Wolves president said that we are disappointed in the language and action and actions Anthony Edward displayed on social media, the Timberwolves are committed to being an inclusive and welcoming organization for all. And I think that was necessary. I think it's I actually don't hate the fact that they set up and they issued a statement. I do want to add that, Anthony Edwards did apologize. And this is important because, like, you know, we can talk about language all day. And even Athlete Ally had enough grace to issue their own tweet to say that they appreciate that he did apologize and that language is harmful and people should understand why, which I thought was very classy. So Anthony Edwards on Twitter What I said was immature, hurtful and disrespectful. I'm incredibly sorry. It's unexpected for me or anyone to use that language in such a hurtful way. There's no excuse for it at all. I was raised better than that. So he is, we understand how black athletes are judged differently and the bar is different. But at the end of the day, he apologized and took ownership for what he said. And, you know, hopefully we'll do better next time. But I do want to burn this specifically because of that use of language. And I think, you know, when we talk about harm, a lot of people tend to think that harm is only violence. These kind of words are violence. That's exactly what they are. Words turn into policies that turn into attacks on people's lives. It's violence. And I want to take that violence. I want to throw it on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Mira,
1: what are you burning? Uh, Two years ago, back in episode 158... I burned a report that came out uh, detailing a welfare embezzlement scheme that happened in Mississippi. Uh, It accused six people working together to embezzle millions of dollars of public money, specifically from the temporary assistance uh, for needy families, and using the Department of Human Services in the state of Mississippi to funnel this money into various terrible selfish things in particularly when I burned it two years ago I focused in on Brett Favre yes the quarterback Brett Favre who got 1.1 million dollars for speaking engagements that he never attended now if you remember at the time Favre denied 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 everybody involved we're like we didn't do this (laughs) not like we believe them then but now thanks to an investigative report by Mississippi Today we have text messages from 2017 2019 demonstrate that Brett Favre, along with uh, Nancy New and then Governor Phil Bryant, were discussing how to divert at least $5 million in those welfare funds to build a volleyball stadium at the University of Southern Mississippi. Southern Mississippi, the school Favre played football at, and of course, at the time, it was also the school that Brett Favre's daughter was playing volleyball at. I am running out of words for how disgusting All of this is. We have known Brett Favre has been a racist, misogynistic creep. But to see these text messages where Favre is saying, If you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out how, where it came from, and how much? Try to deny that. Where it came from, you know you were taking from families who need it. You know you were taking millions of dollars from families who need it to build a volleyball stadium (laughs) that your daughter could play volleyball in. In Mississippi, I said this two years ago and I'll say it again, Mississippi, one of the poorest states in this country, a very black state, where almost half of Mississippi black children live in poverty, that program you diverted funds for is already gutted. It's already receiving less than the national average. It already is raising the bar so much on who can even qualify in Mississippi that only 8% of Mississippi families in poverty are even accessing these funds. You're stripping it from Mississippians, hardworking Mississippians who need support, whose government constantly turns their back on them. I mean, just two weeks ago, I was telling you that Jackson doesn't have water. And here you go, diverting funds and hoping the public doesn't catch wind of it. Well, guess what? We caught wind of it. We know what you did. We see you for who you are. Hell, even Jeff Perlman, who wrote the biography on Brett Farver, telling you to burn that book because he is scum. Honestly, I, fuck Brett Favre, fuck Nancy New, fuck Phil Bryant, fuck Tate Reeves, because this legacy is continuing. It is sickening. It is disturbing. I wish it was surprising. Ugh. The people of Mississippi deserve so much better than what they have gotten. Black Mississippians deserve so much better than what they have gotten. It shouldn't have taken this long. It shouldn't have taken a text message for for him to get this kind of public reckoning. Because the writing has been on the wall. But for now, burn it all down.
0: Burn. Moving on to some incredible, incredible accomplishments. Amira, can you get us started?
1: Yes, absolutely. Want to shout out U.S. Open champions. Elfie Hewitt took the men's wheelchair singles final. And Didi DeGroote won the women's wheelchair singles final. It marks her fifth straight U.S. Open singles title. Um, And Iga Switek took the women's single final, which was her second Grand Slam of the season. Special shout out to Ons Javor, of course, who became the first woman of African descent to uh, appear in a final. She had a tremendous run at the Open. And shout out to France. TFO as well. Uh, it was a wonderful Open, and everybody just showed the hell out. It was great tennis.
0: Congratulations to Nick Suzuki, named captain of the Montreal Canadians at 23 and only the second hockey player of Asian descent to be named as a full captain.
1: I just also want to shout out the Sunbelt Conference. If you're not familiar, um, big-time Power 5 conferences often pay less resource teams to come play them in hopes of getting an embarrassing momentum-building first win. Well, the Sun Belt Conference had other ideas this past weekend. Um, Georgia Southern took down Nebraska, beat them so bad they got their coach fired. Um, Marshall shocked Notre Dame. Uh, and Appalachian State, not the first time to be uh, in this role of the Cinderella team, upset the Aggies down at Texas A&M. The Sunbelt Conference, much slept on, always overlooked, absolutely had a statement weekend.
0: Um, I just want to shout out Team Pakistan, the women's national football team, who after eight years of hiatus finally got to play in the South Asian Football Federation Tournament. They won their last match of the tournament against the Maldives, 7-0. And a huge congratulations to those women who never gave up, particularly Hajar Khan, friend of the show. It was a wonderful moment.
1: So uh, we are in the middle of WNBA finals, but the awards have been given out. So we want to shout out, uh, of course, Asia Wilson got Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, Ryan Howard got Rookie of the Year for the Atlanta Dream. Jackie Young from the Aces is the Most Improved Player. Brianna Jones from the Sun, Sixth Player of the Year. The Coach of the Year is Becky Hammond. James Wade of the Sky got Executive of the Year. And uh, Syl Fowles from the Lynx uh, took home the Sportsmanship Award Asia Wilson also was just named the MVP um, of the WNBA. This is her second MVP title, making her only the seventh player in league history to take home those honors more than once.
0: Amazing. Uh, can we get a drum roll, please, Amira? Give me your Phil Collins. <laughs> Carlos Alcaraz. The young Spanish tennis sensation made history with his men's singles, U.S. Open win, which also gave him the world number one ranking. He is 19 years old and now the youngest world number one in men's tennis history. Amira, tell me what's good. What is good? Um... What is good? Okay. It is Toronto International Film Festival time. I'm going to go watch Black on Ice, and I'm very excited about that. Then I'm going to go watch The Woman King this weekend, which I cannot wait for. Queen Viola Davis is in town, just sprinkling Her Majesty everywhere. Just love her. I cannot wait to see this film. Um, I just wanted to say that school has begun, and I'm teaching three classes, and I love my classes. I also am extremely excited, and I tweeted this out, that I told my students unequivocally, don't hand me any work in, which you've cited Barstool. Don't bother. And I thought about that, and I thought about it being actually a powerful moment, because when you legitimize what isn't legitimate in terms of systems of racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, Islamophobia, it felt really good to do that, and I've been carrying that and walking with that and feeling really proud about that. I'm also really excited that Law & Order, the original series, season six, is on Amazon Prime and I found it last night. And I'm very excited about Welcome to Wrexham. Thanks, Samira. That's totally your fault.
1: Um, TV is making me happy. Zendaya picked up another Emmy for Euphoria and Avid Elementary Did wonderful Kunta got an Emmy for writing in her first show. Makes me so happy. I got to see her in L.A. for uh, the ESPYs and tell her how much um, Abbott meant uh, to all of us. And so it was so great to see her win. And and Cheryl Lee Ralph got a much-deserved Emmy, only the second Black woman in history to get an Emmy for uh, Supporting Role. Um, which again, representation? See what happens. And gave a resounding singing speech, which led to my favorite thing. If everybody knows my favorite movie, Sister Act two, and she plays Lauren Hill's mom, and she has lines: "Singing will not put food on the table. Singing will not pay the bills." And then she sung her acceptance speech, and everybody said, and she had the nerve to tell Rita that sitting, uh, singing wouldn't pay the bills. Um, so it was funny. I really enjoyed that. Uh, season two of Reservation Dogs is amazing. I finally caught up. Um, it continues to be one of the best shows on TV, one of my favorite shows. Um, so I I highly recommend it. Other than that, we're just in September. We're rolling along. You know, there's lots of sports sporting. Uh, there's teaching happening. <laughs> I love my class. Yeah. Um, uh Samari's so back in rehearsal, which means that I spent a lot of time writing in in bars that I'm discovering around Austin with beautiful green flower spaces and uh, indoor and outdoor plants and fun patios. Um, and so it's like by far my favorite way to discover the city. And so that is uh, what I did for most of the weekend. Um, so that's that's what's good for me, just chugging along.
0: What we're watching this week. So the WNBA finals are on and they're lit. So we're definitely watching that. And Amira, we've alluded to Welcome to Wrexham, which we have talked about on our Patreon, but... You are watching other sports-related content. Can you give our listeners uh, just an insight into what you're watching in case they're interested?
1: Friend of the show, Brandy, had tweeted that there is this random F1 episode of uh, McDonald's and Hobbs, which is a a British detective series. Uh, You can find it on BritBox. Um, I got a one-week, it's free trial. Anyways, there's this absolutely fever dream episode that's based on F1, where it's very clearly a driver who's supposed to be Lewis Hamilton while he was at Williams. Um, and he like gets murdered during a pit stop But there's more, it's twisted It's wild Somebody literally like had a sh- like multiple <laughs> shrooms And was like, let me write this detective show episode I thoroughly enjoyed it
0: Amazing That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down This episode was produced by the one and only Tressa Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard Burn It All Down is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and tune in. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And if you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, and we cannot do without you, patreon.com slash burnitalldown. Burn it on and not out. Oh, can I just add one thing?
1: Everybody remember, multiple planets are in retrograde. So if everything in your life is really topsy-turvy right now, just <laughs> hang on, beloved. Th- we'll get through it together.
0: I thought you were going to say something because I Arsenal was the only team invited and I wasn't spiting you. Just she didn't care for me and you. I, I, I thought you were going to say something about that.